2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul has jumped in and begun kind of a discussion on ministry in general and what it looks like to be a minister of Christ and of the gospel. So all we ended at about verse 6, and he begins this contrast where he says again, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So he's introduced this contrast between the letter that kills, which was the Old Testament law and the Old Covenant, and the spirit that gives life. And now what Paul wants to do is further illustrate that through a situation that happened with Moses. So he says this, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, talking about that Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Paul now begins this kind of discussion about in the Old Testament, the Old Testament system, this Jewish religious system, and what they have now through the life of the Holy Spirit. And Paul calls the written Ten Commandments and the written law the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. Again, notice he says in 7, if the ministry of death, verse 9, if the ministry of condemnation marking both of those because the ministry of the Old Testament law was meant to kill all hope in personal goodness and merit. The whole point was God gave a law. That law was 100% perfect, but because it was perfect, you had to be perfect and nobody could be perfect. So if you tried to keep the law, you just found out pretty quick, man, I can't do this. And then you needed a response. Okay, now what do I do? Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was a tutor, kind of a helper, to teach anyone that thought they could be a good person that they're not a good person. And in fact, I'm not anything close to God. And so what do I do now? And even in the law, it was inferred and assumed you would mess up, and that's why there were sacrifices. An innocent substitute had to pay on your behalf. You would have to turn around and say, man, where can I find salvation? I can't find it in myself. So Paul says it was a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. It still, he says, was glorious. It had a measure of glory to it in verse 7 there. And he's going to illustrate that through Moses because he says the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. We know from Exodus 34 when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, you can read that section. He gets them. He comes down. Literally, his face is glowing, having been in God's presence. And he ends up putting a veil over it because the people are afraid and what happens is Paul uses this to say there was still something glorious about this ministry. There was 
uh, and a true act of God. There was something that reflected who he was in the ministry of the giving of the law. Paul says the law is good. It's, it's good for what its purpose was, for the lawless and to lead to Christ. So there was a measure of glory there. But that glory was passing. And now here's the contrast, verse 8. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So if this ministry, which led to condemnation and death, had a glory because it came from God, well, how will not the ministry of the Spirit be even greater than that? One is passing. This is going to be the, the contrast. The other is everlasting. It remains. Verse 9. Again, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness, because that's what God gives through the ministry of the Spirit in the New Covenant, exceeds much more in glory. It is more glorious. It has more of God and who he is even in it, reflected through it. If one had a type of glory, the other has a greater type of glory, so much so, he says, verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. The other one, the new covenant, is so remarkable that it makes the old covenant seem like it has no glory, like the sun coming out or the moon coming out. When the moon's out, it can look bright. Until the sun shows up, then it's like, oh, yeah, that's not bright. So the point is, Paul's saying, no, 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 like we're not, again, ministers of this old covenant that led to condemnation and death. We're ministers of the new covenant through the spirit, something more glorious, something more remarkable. God was in that old covenant. He had a purpose and there is a type of glory there. But verse 11 sums it up kind of for him. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. I get to be part of this greater thing, he's saying, this new type of ministry. It's not condemnation, but a ministry of righteousness and of life. So much greater that it's not even worth comparing. Again, we don't, we don't end up lawless without the Old Testament law. We have a new law. The Bible says we have the law of the life of the Spirit. Again, Paul would say in Romans 9 that the righteous requirements of the law are no longer fulfilled in the flesh. What the law requires, God doesn't ask us to live out on our own strength. They're fulfilled in the one who walks not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And in Romans 8, Paul kind of lays this out again. But the point is, instead of God giving us handwritten commandments on a stone tablet, he took the spirit that inspired those things and put it in our life. So we don't just have the information. We have the power. We have the literal life in us. <laughs> it's not just this is what the life looks like. He gives us what that life is. He pours it into us. And Paul's saying the one is way more glorious than the other. This is, this is what God has done. He doesn't just tell us now thou shalt not steal. He gives us his spirit that does not want to steal. That's way better. And in fact, he doesn't have to write out 600 extra commandments. He just gave us his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit, the one who would inspire all those commandments anyway, says, yeah, this is what you need to do. And he leads us in every situation so that we walk in the spirit in our life. And Paul is 
Paul wants them to see that this old covenant was passing. The new one is what remains, and this is what they are ministers of. Therefore, verse 12, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness of speech. Paul's saying, this is what we believe in. So we're speaking boldly about this, about the gospel, about trust in the sufficiency of Christ and in the spirit and his ministry. We don't. I don't have to wonder about where my sufficiency comes from or what the power to do this is. We speak boldly about the Spirit and how he works in people's lives. One, I will say one characteristic of false teaching in Paul's day and even our day is that it's confusing a lot, mysterious, elitist. They would always have these groups that if you really wanted to be in, you had to get into these higher segments of whatnot. Stuff wasn't there for normal folks. There's always something kind of confusing and questioning about it. And that seems like it's smarter or more sincere. But when God spoke to people and worked in their lives, they didn't ask a bunch of questions. They answered them. Elijah and Moses didn't show up asking questions. They answered the questions. Moses wasn't in front of Pharaoh like, I think God said, let my people go. I'm not really sure about what I need to. No, he had definitive interaction with God. He knew he knew what he was supposed to do. And Paul can say, we have great boldness. We speak very clearly. God has given us an incredible hope. And this is a pretty bold thing to do. If you're Paul, you contrast yourself with Moses. Unlike Moses, you didn't put Moses down, especially if you were writing to Jewish people. So we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. There's a bold thing here. Paul uses this image and he uses this image of the veil that Moses put over his face as an illustration here. Now, Moses was not teaching this teaching when he put the veil over his face, he didn't know what Paul was going to say down the line here. Moses, or excuse me, Paul is using Moses as an illustration. Moses wasn't scared uh, that people would see the glory passing. Moses put that over his face because the people were afraid to approach him. The holiness of God scared them away and they needed God's word. They did not want to approach. It was a reflection of God, and they were scared of God. God had already talked to them, and they were like, please, Moses, don't ever let him talk to us again. <laughs> you go talk to him, then tell us what he says. We're cool with that. So what's happening here is Paul references this and says his ministry, in essence, was very much like that. Moses' uh, ministry was veiled, shadowed fading. The glory wasn't lasting. It was full of types, full of pictures, full of representations, ceremonies, covered the various truths that God had like a veil. You could see through it some, but not clearly. You had to see through the sacrificial system to the Lamb of God. You had to see through some of these things. They were representative of who God was and what he was doing. There was a certain type of veil. They were important, but they were temporary. Now, verse 14, what Paul wants to show is that veil is still there. He says, but their minds were blinded. Israel, Moses put that veil over his face. They didn't look steadily look at him. Their minds were blinded. 
For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away, notice, in Christ. How does that veil get removed? In Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Paul says, just like Moses had to cover himself with this veil, there's a veil that lies over Jewish hearts. They still don't clearly see God and who he is and his glory. It covers them from what they should be seeing. He's, he says they're blind to it. And this is a pretty bold statement. Paul is literally claiming that the most religious Jews did not understand the glory of the law. Which, if you would say that to them, they would not be happy. If you said that to a Jew that was religious in Israel today, they would not be happy with you. But Paul would know because he was that person. He knew that very clearly. He was very familiar with the Old Testament law, but he did not see the glory of God through it as he should. And they were blind to the true spiritual nature of circumcision. They didn't understand really what that meant of the Passover. They didn't get it. John would again write, we're going to read soon. Not a bone of his will be broken. That was a command about one of the, Pas the Passover lamb. What, what, what did all that mean? They, they didn't get the whole picture. But when Christ showed up, they should have. Paul wanted that veil to be removed. And he says, how can that veil be removed? It's still there today. In the Old Testament, at least, there was something of an excuse. They didn't know. That was what the ministry was. But when Jesus showed up, they should have known. They should have seen. The veil should be removed in Christ. They should have recognized, oh, this is Emmanuel, God with us. They needed to see who he was. And it's only taken away in Christ when Paul was writing this to the Corinthians and even today. Jews still need to be saved. They're God's chosen people. He will keep them alive as a national group. Right now, nobody in the world is going to wipe out the Jews. Because God said it's not going to happen. As a national group, they will remain alive. They might lose the battle, but they're never going to lose the war. But that doesn't mean that they're all saved. They still need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. They, they still need to give their life to him and find salvation in him. They need the veil to be removed in Christ Jesus. That was the consistent message of the apostles. Now, Paul himself, it would be his call in life to share this with the Gentiles, but his heart was always for the Jews. Even when he was first state, saved, he wanted to stay in Jerusalem and he wanted to minister to the religious leaders and they told him to go, he was gonna be killed. God had a different call for him. But the apostles preach very clearly, Acts 5 tells us this, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, who you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. How does Israel find repentance and forgiveness of sins? To see Jesus Christ as their prince and savior at the right hand of God. That was the message the apostles preached. We are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This was Paul's hope. 
you have Jewish friends, this is what you need to pray. <laughs> that God removes the veil over their heart and their eyes in Christ Jesus. That they see who he is. How can this possibly happen? Only through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. And it's the only way it happens in anyone's life. But that, that Paul says, Old Testament veil is still there and it needs to be removed. Now, he says in 17, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. This can be a confusing verse, but really what Paul's saying here is simply that it's kind of Trinitarian language, that Jesus and the spirit are one. Like Jesus stands in front of people at one point and says, I and the Father are one. We're the same. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Spirit is Jesus Christ. Romans 9, excuse me, Romans 8, 9 and 10 says this, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is his. So in one verse, you have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, and the spirit of Christ. All together, it's the same spirit. He's Christ's spirit. Galatians 4, 6 says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. This Jesus Christ who they need to see is also the Spirit. He's the Lord. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. How did they get freedom from this veil? How was the veil torn? Only through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ works that reality through the power of his Spirit. And where you find that, you find, notice, liberty. What kind of liberty is he talking about? Well, clearly, it's the liberty from the law, liberty from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and eventually liberty from the presence of sin. It's the type of liberty that all humanity actually needs. America has a decent type of liberty, but it's a liberty that can still be twisted and abused and made wicked. I have the liberty to turn myself into a moral monster in America if I want. But in Jesus Christ, true freedom, he turns people into what they actually were created to be. Beings free from sin, free from the effects of sin. One day free from a world of sin. The liberty that people are actually looking for. In Christ, we find what liberty is. Now, Christians can use their liberty in a wrong way. First Corinthians 8, says we shouldn't use our liberty as a stumbling block for other believers. Galatians 5 says we shouldn't use our liberty for an excuse to serve the flesh. Sometimes people just say, oh, I have the freedom to do these things as a believer. Smoke weed is natural. Right? I can drink, I can curse. I'm not using the Lord's name in vain. Right? People have some ridiculous things out there. Um, but really, they're just using their liberty as an excuse to serve their flesh. Paul says in Galatians 5, we shouldn't do that. And you can use your liberty, 1 Peter 2 tells us, as a cloak for vice. That a Christian can cover true vices in their life through their liberty and try to 
explain it away in some religious way. The Pharisees did that. They had good reasons why they were trying to murder Jesus. <laughs> There's always some ways that people can cover things up. That's not the liberty here that we're called to or that God works in people. Where the life of Christ, the Spirit and the Lord are working. There's liberty. It's liberty from sin and its effects. And God sets us free from those things and we begin to walk in them in greater and greater measure. We should know them in greater ways. When you got saved, you were set free. And then God begins to build in you that experience of, of liberty and freedom in greater and greater ways. A greater freedom in your mind, a greater freedom in your heart, a greater freedom even in your body to be in harmony with what your mind and your heart really are called to do in Christ Jesus. And one day, we're free from sin totally, the very presence of sin. That's, that's the type of liberty that he's working toward. Paul says, that's the liberty I want them to know. Liberty from this law, but liberty from sin and its effects, the death and condemnation that comes from sin. But we all, this is beautiful verse 18, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is Paul's, I think, little condensed version of Christianity here. He's talking about that liberty, I think, kind of in what it, in what it looks like. He says, but we all, that's a wonderful experience here. An experienced verse before he was talking about Moses, Moses, who was alone when he saw God and talked with God and had his face glowing. But he says, in contrast to Moses, we all get to be a part of this. The, the Christian message is there isn't a pope or a priest or a pastor who gets special access to God that other people don't get. That's not a reality in the Bible. We're called kings and priests together. The access comes through Jesus Christ, and everybody is allowed to have it. You can have as much of God as you want in your life. Now, we don't all choose to be with him equally. But the point is, the access that has been opened on his end is open for everyone. We all, every single one of us, Moses had that heart. We had that story where the Spirit of God falls on the camp and men are preaching and there's a couple that are preaching kind of away from them. And Joshua says, Moses, Eldad, Medad, these guys, they're preaching. I told them to stop. And he said, no, I wish that God's Spirit was on all his sons and daughters. Moses wanted that. And, and here Paul's saying that, that actually happened here. We all get to be a part of this. There's nobody who's exempt in contrast this life of Christ that we've called to, this liberty that we get to step into, is there for everyone. Nobody has special access that other people don't get. It's open to every single individual. And he says, with unveiled face, Moses against face was veiled. We get to, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We get to be a part of this 
beholding the glory of God that the Old Testament saint didn't get to have in this unique way. With unveiled face, with nothing between us and him, our blindness has been removed and it will remain removed. There is no veil between you and Jesus Christ. He took care of it. You have access into his presence. You're his son. You're his daughter. He wants to be with us more than we want to be with him. He made that clear in the gift of his son and what he did. And you and I, we don't have to do anything to make that happen. He has created this reality for us in his own work on the cross. And what happens there is, is we, Paul says, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now there's some argument here in this verse uh, on whether the emphasis is on reflecting or beholding, because that word in the Greek, beholding as in a mirror, do we reflect like mirrors or do we behold like mirrors? The word in the Greek is just one word. It's a single word, beholding as in a mirror, your Bible says. And it's used only here in the New Testament. And the reality is that the word actually has a double idea. Both are true. A mirror both reflects and you can behold it, right? Like, that's, that's what happens. There's, there's a reflection of what's being seen. The, the things are happening at the same time. So what's reflected is the glory of the Lord. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, again, would say to Philip, Have I been so long with you, yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That what we get to see with unveiled face is the glory of the Lord. We behold it. We look at it. We see it as in a mirror. A mirror can only reflect what it sees or receives, right? Well, the mirror we're looking at is Jesus Christ. We get to see him. Paul says. We get to look at him. We get to behold his glory. We get to know him. If we're not occupied with Jesus Christ, that's not on Jesus Christ. He has made that access open for all of us. There's no veil over our face that we can't see him if we don't want to. There's nothing blocking him. We don't have to see him in the shadows that they had to in the Old Testament pictures. We get to see him clearly in the person of Jesus Christ and his son. And if we behold Jesus Christ, what happens? Paul says, we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Transformation happens. A reflection of who he is begins to happen in our lives individually. Again, this is Paul's version of a condensed Christianity. We're saved from the law. We're freely beholding the Lord, and as we see him and come to know him, we are transformed into that same image and likeness. That's what happens. That's how Christianity works. How does that all happen specifically? I don't know. I just know that these are the ingredients, and it works. Because this is the word of God, and this is what it says. If I submit myself to this process, it's going to happen. If I freely approach him... 
based on the liberty I have in Christ, and I behold Jesus Christ, the glory of who he is, I seek his face, I will be transformed into the same image and glory. That's how any Christian grows and becomes like Jesus Christ. Now, I know there are a lot of excuses about those things. People want to say, well, I tried that. It didn't work. Look, this is the word of God. Now, sometimes the reality is we didn't really try something. I mean, we gave it a little effort and it was hard. So then we quit. That's usually the story. But we can't really imagine that God created a world so that humans could create corn by method, but Christ's likeness has to come by chance. Right. But we can throw the sun and the soil and the water together and grow anything we want. We know the method for that. But to become like Jesus, which is the ultimate point of the highest creation that God made. That's what Paul tells us in Romans, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Right. The main thing God wants to do in the world is conform people in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we act like that happens by chance. Like, I don't know why it's working for them and not for me. No, we have to trust the process. If I sit in the sun, I'm going to get tan. I don't get how it all works. Some people get a little redder than others, right? There's a little variation in there. But the thing is, the process works. If I throw the right ingredients together, I'm going to grow corn. The method works. There's still some room for how God does things. But the reality is, if I'm a Christian and I'm free in him and I give my life to seek him and I behold Jesus Christ, I will be conformed into the same image and likeness. I will be transformed. I will be made more like him. And if we feel like, well, I've been trying that, but it's not working. Maybe we haven't really been beholding Christ like we should. Maybe we've been caught up in other things. You know, doing good things is not the same as beholding Jesus Christ. I think any Christian has served the Lord and walk with him. I know in my own life there, there are times where I'm like, I just need to focus on Jesus again. I could be focused on a lot of good things. But those good things can pull you aside from the main thing. And the main thing is him and who he is. And when I get refocused on him, I begin to see God do things in my life. Now, look, there's no shortcut to Christian character. A lot of times we just want to rush this process. You can't rush the corn. You can't rush Christ-like character. It's going to take some time. But if I submit myself to what he says, it's God's word. It's going to work. God does not need another method because this is his method. He does not require, uh, if this doesn't work, then something else. He doesn't need a plan B because plan A works. And so this is the method that he will always use, Holy Spirit-driven transformation into the image and likeness of God. There is no other method. Nothing else will work. You, you, can, you could take any Christian, doesn't matter what background, what denomination, you think of the holiest people that you know, Augustine, George Mueller, any Christian that you can look up to and say that was a super spiritual person, I guarantee it's all the same things. They spent a decent amount of time with prayer. They spent a decent amount of time in the word of God. They took the fellowship of God seriously, and they became Christ-like. No secret sauce. 
<laughs> they just did this and it happened. God did the work. You want to become Christ-like? You commit to beholding Jesus Christ, putting the Son in front of you, showing up and keeping him in your face. Henry Drummond, in his The Greatest Thing in the World, says this, Since we are what we are by the impacts of those who surround us, those who surround themselves with the highest will be those who change into the highest. To live with Socrates with unveiled face must have made one wise. Aristides, just. Francis of Assisi must have made one gentle. Savonarola, strong. But to have lived with Christ, to have lived with Christ must have made one like Christ. That is to say, a Christian. That's how the disciples did it. They just hung out with Christ. And they were changed into his image, into his likeness, received his spirit. They saw him. They knew him. This is how it happens to us. Paul says, this is, this is what we've been set free to do. I didn't get set free just to live my life at a distance from Jesus Christ. I got set free to walk in him, to behold him. And as I see his glory, I am changed into that same image by the Spirit of the Lord. That's what God is doing in our lives. That's how he works that. Now, therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, since we have this ministry, having talked about that, since this is the ministry you're a part of, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. By the mercy of God, Paul received this ministry of the new covenant and the power of the Spirit. He was very happy to be a part of this ministry and not the Old Testament type of ministry. He who had been faithful and zealous for that Old Testament law and that religious system, he had been a part of that. The, he, Paul had been all about the ministry of death and condemnation. He didn't know it. He wasn't going to lose hope and give up on the more glorious ministry of righteousness. He's like, we have this ministry. This is an incredible thing that God has allowed us to be a part of. This is the thing that's not passing away. The Bible calls it the everlasting gospel. And you and I get the privilege of being a part of that. He says, we have received mercy in these things. I find it actually interesting. Paul uses the word mercy here, where you would think typically Paul would use the word grace, which was very much his word. But I think Paul realized there's a special need of mercy for those who are in ministry, who are serving other people, actively trying to be Christ-like and a light and salt and a witness where they are. Because in his pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 1-2, 2 Timothy 1-2, and Titus 1-4, in all the pastoral epistles, he gives his typical greeting, grace and peace, but he puts mercy in there. Grace, mercy, and peace to Timothy. And then again to Timothy. And then again to Titus. These guys, particularly that are in ministry, he throws that mercy in there like, God knows anybody who's trying to serve him and serve other people, they're going to need mercy. It's a mercy that we get to be a part of it. It's a mercy that we need to do it. And God is gracious to extend that. And Paul sees that even in his own heart and life. So he says, Therefore, since we have received this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But, now he's going to contrast, again, himself with some of these false teachers. We have renounced three things. The hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. 
but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Again, Paul had been talking about some false teachers. He kind of brings that back up, likely those in the church. And he mentions three things that they do. The first is we have renounced the hidden things of shame. The idea there is hidden things that would be shameful if revealed. Paul says our ministry does not have those. We have renounced everything that we would be ashamed of if it was revealed. As Christians, certainly we want that to be true of ministries. We're always sad. It's when the case comes out that there's a ministry that we thought we could trust that had hidden things there that were shameful. Uh, And it's sad in personal lives as well. But as Christians, we should live the type of lives that are salt and light. People should not find in our lives hidden things that are shameful. And if they're there, we should repent and bring them out. So that if anybody came and said, this is true of you, you could say, already repented, already brought it out. It's already washed in the blood. He walked up to David. That was what made him the man he was. You're a murderer and adulterer. He'd be like, yep. Yep. Already confessed it. Already admitted it. Already been dealt with. His problem was when it was hidden in his life. Big brother scans your TV or what we're looking at on the internet. We shouldn't have hidden things of shame. We should be able to renounce those things. Paul said, we don't have hidden things of shame. We've renounced those things. That's not our life. Nor walking in craftiness. Paul didn't use his craftiness as underhanded tactics or trickery with people. He wasn't manipulating people's thoughts in ways. It's very sad. Even in religious circles, there are whole um, you know, pastoral tracks that will stand in front of pastors and denominations who are going to be accredited and tell them, look, when you get in front of your congregation, you can't just say these things outright. You have to lead them slowly along the way with these ideas. You have to teach them these things first. Let them begin to question these things. Then they literally teach people how to deceive people and break down their faith. It's nuts. And if I hadn't seen some of these things live, you wouldn't even believe that they exist. But even in Paul's day, there are people that were crafty. The word for craftiness there is used the Pharisees. When they come to Jesus and they want to do the whole, should we pay Caesar taxes thing? Luke twenty twenty three it says, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Out there just trying to trick people, get them in some type of thing, some trap. And it's used of Satan. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians eleven three, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Look, there are crafty people out there who want to use the word of God to twist your thoughts and your mind about things. And they might be very likable folks. And they say a bunch of things that are very nice and they use good illustrations that create truth instead of actually illustrate it. And they, they try to get in to your heart and your mind in various ways and cause you to doubt Jesus Christ like Satan the serpent showed up and tried to corrupt that word of God with Adam and Eve. And he still does that. And Paul says, we don't, we don't work that way. There's not some trickery when we're talking to you. We speak plainly the word of God. We manifest 
the truth. Paul wrote clearly, and he already said things I wrote. What I said is what I meant. He lived openly and he spoke the truth sincerely. Didn't have anything to hide. He didn't have some ulterior motive. Nor, he says, handling the word of God deceitfully. And there, the idea is to make the word of God mean something different than God intended it or to use it in a way other than the way God intended it. There are people who use the Bible to obscure Bible truth. We know Satan can quote scripture. We see that more than once. Right off the bat, yea, hath God said. Right? We know he stood there with Jesus Christ. Didn't the Lord give charge over? Didn't he say he quotes part, part of a psalm? just a section to make it mean something other than it actually means. And Jesus quotes the whole psalm and points out what it actually means. And there are always people out there, they're going to take a verse or a chapter or something that they're going to try to twist your thoughts with. Yeah, but the Bible says this, this, but they don't actually read the scripture. They'll pull a verse out of Galatians and try to tell you something, but you can't say, why don't you read the whole book? What does Galatians mean? What is he writing there? There's always people that handle the word of God deceitfully. It still happens today. Paul says, we're not working on any of these levels. That's not who we are. That's not what our ministry is. And that's why it's important. Again, we'll always come here and say, open your Bibles. Look at the text. You should not trust the person who's up there teaching. And and. You should always have a person who can say that. Don't trust me. Read your Bible. (laughs) If they say, no, you have to trust me because you don't understand your Bible. There's an issue. Because the Bible doesn't say anything like that. It says you as a normal person can read it and he's giving you his spirit and he'll teach you. So it's important that we open our Bibles and we recognize, man, there are people out there who have shameful things hidden in their life that are crafty, that are trying to use the word of God deceitfully. And like I said, they don't, they don't have horns and a red tail that you can be like, that guy's probably crafty. Some of them are very likable. Very likable. But it's what they're saying and doing that is dangerous. Instead, Paul says, here's, here's how we do. <laughs> By manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We speak the truth, we live it, and we speak it, and we let it do, we let it do its thing on human consciences. God takes it in his spirit, and he takes care of things. That's, that's how we minister. Now, he's going to admit, it's not just Jews who have a problem. Verse 3, he says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age have blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. He wants to admit, yeah, there's Gentile hearts as well that have a veil. They have a blindness. But Paul's clear that those that are veiled and blinded are also those that are perishing. Do you notice that? If our gospel is veiled, if the things we're saying and preaching the truth is veiled, is veiled to those who are perishing. I think this is important. Sincere belief is not enough. What Paul's saying is the gospel of Jesus Christ is the dividing line, the eternal dividing line 
in all matters of faith. Do you notice that? If you don't see our gospel, you're perishing. It's, it's not okay if you sincerely believe another religion. Like, I don't like that you said that. I didn't say it. Paul said it. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> the Bible claims that it is not okay if you do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are perishing. And the only way to be living is to find life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian and you say that type of thing and people say, but you said, you can just say, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus claims about himself. That's what the apostles preached about the gospel. If you do not see the gospel clearly, you're perishing. You're perishing. Jesus' direct call to Paul the Apostle, Acts 26. Jesus is speaking. He says to Paul when he knocked him down on his way to Damascus. He says this, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was called by Jesus Christ himself to go help open the eyes of people to who he is so that they can receive forgiveness and life. That was Jesus' words to Paul. And Paul just went and preached that gospel in obedience. It wasn't what Paul said, it was what Jesus said. And a person who has a problem with it has a problem with Jesus. Except if you have a problem with Jesus, he's the only one who can save. And people need to see Jesus who he is. Why are they perishing? Notice what Paul says here. Verse 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Notice, who do not believe. Here's why they're perishing. Because of unbelief. They do not believe. It doesn't say they cannot. It says they do not. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said, you will not believe. He didn't say you cannot believe. You will not. You have chosen not to believe. Unbelief is a sin. It's a willful choice in the Bible. It is a moral decision. The reason their minds are blinded is because unbelief is seeking for reasons for self-blinding. <laughs> Give me any reason not to believe in Jesus. It's, it's remarkable how often that you can speak with a believer. I've been in plenty of scenarios where I'm talking with somebody and their faith has been doing really well. And all of a sudden they're talking about all these questions they have. I don't know about miracles. Can we trust the Bible? I'm really doubting in my faith. And you know what's funny? Usually, almost every time something comes out about their life. Oh, you're living in sexual sin with your boyfriend or girlfriend. And surprise, you have all these doubts. Now, unbelief begins to creep in. Why? Jesus said men love darkness because their deeds are dark. Men, men want something else. And if you want something else, you will find whatever excuse you can find to not believe. And you know who's out there to help you? Satan. He will, he will give you every excuse in the world. He'll show you hypocrites. He'll show you people in the church. He'll show you yourself. He'll show you your sin. He'll show you science, so-called. 
He'll show you all different types of reasons to not believe what Jesus says about himself. And the God of this world will blind minds. Satan's there to help in the task. And Paul says, I know that is there. I know it's not just Jews, but Gentiles also are veiled to the gospel. Satan's out there, the God of this world, he's blinded their minds with something from this world because they will not believe who Jesus is, who he says he is, the truth about what he's done for them. And sadly, because Paul's ministry was faithful, under every faithful ministry, there are those who will perish because they refuse to believe the truth. I hope that's not anybody in this room. But the reality is under every faithful ministry, there are some who will perish. That was proved in Jesus Christ. You can have even the closest connection to Jesus Christ, his 12 disciples, and one did not believe, Jesus says of Judas. He did not believe, would not, wanted something else. And that ultimately leads a man to perish. Word for perish in the Bible is translated perish, destroy, lost. All of those things are a picture of life outside of Jesus Christ. If I don't believe in him, I have all hope gone, all purpose destroyed, all relationships. Lost, lost to God, lost to man. You don't have to be lost. Jesus came to seek and to save those that were lost. But your salvation is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And you need to see that. And you need to believe it. You need to put your faith in it. And stop trusting and looking toward anything else. And stop allowing the God of this world to blind you to the fact that Jesus loves you. And he died on a cross to pay for your sins so that you could be set free. Eternally. Paul says, I know. Why are they lost? Because they won't believe. And they won't, notice what he says here, allow the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, to shine on them. They refuse to see that light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's a glory what he's done for us. That's why Paul says in verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Paul knew we're in a spiritual combat with spiritual and supernatural enemies. So how, how can we have any of this happen? How, how can this become a reality? How can a human being see the light of the glory of God in Christ Jesus? Well, only through the power of God. Only through a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Paul's only hope was divine assistance and resources. Now, he trusted in those things. He had known it personally. It was the message from the beginning. 
people preach Jesus Christ. From John the Baptist saying, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, to the apostles walking out and saying, we are witnesses that this Jesus Christ whom you slew, God has made Lord and Savior, and he will be judge of the living and the dead. To Paul the apostle who saw him afterwards, to every Christian who's gone down the line after that. The message that we preach that changes hearts and lives is Jesus Christ. We don't preach ourselves, Paul said. And there's a lot of people preaching out there. Sometimes it's accidental. I think some guys just don't know any better. But when a whole crowd of people walks away laughing about stories about a dude's life, and I really like that guy, and they don't walk away thinking about Jesus Christ, that person has not preached correctly. Paul's message was, we preach Jesus Christ. That, it's not politics, it's not funny stories, it's not spiritual experiences, it's not good feelings. We preach Jesus Christ. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ, and you know who we are? Servants of Jesus Christ. We're just given the message bond slaves of his. That's the thing that changes people. Even if it's, you need Jesus, he loves you. You're like, I'm not a preacher. You can say that. (laughs) You can literally say to people, hey, I'm not a preacher, but you need Jesus. He loves you. He died for your sins. That's good enough. You want to know why? Because they'll walk away and the Holy Spirit will be like, yeah, that was true. If you get in an argument about aliens and creation and all these other things and politics, right, the person's going to walk away thinking like, oh, they're annoying. But you just put Jesus Christ in there. You preach Jesus Christ. Then that person's got to walk around thinking about Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And that's the power of our message. Paul says, that's what we preach. Why? Verse 6 For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice, who is it? It's the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. God who in creation spoke light into the darkness, the dark and the void, speaks light and life into human hearts. That same God who can do that can do the same thing in human lives. And Paul knew that because it happened to him. Sometimes preachers don't preach Jesus Christ because they're not actually saved. If you're born again, you preach Jesus Christ. (laughs) If you're not actually saved, you don't even know. Preach about a whole bunch of nice things. But you don't preach Jesus Christ and you never met him. You haven't had the divine illumination yourself. Paul did. He preached Jesus Christ. And he knew that the new birth was a miracle even greater than the miracle of creation. Because Jesus didn't have to die for creation. He had to die to save sinners like you and me. But he said the God who could do that work does it in dark human hearts. He could speak life and light. So that people can come to know and see Jesus Christ. Spiritual illumination is true through the work of God. That same God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. 
wonderful words here, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It's cross-cultural. You know what was written over Jesus' cross, the king of the Jews, written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, the three major cultures of the day. The Hebrews, their main ideal was light, spiritual light, illumination. The Greeks, their main ideal was knowledge, to know God. The Romans, their main ideal was glory. You know what he says here? You can have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. You want to see what you're supposed to see in life? You'll see it in that man. Only there. The ideal that's ultimately cross-cultural. Remarkably, human faces don't differ widely in terms of basic construction material, right? Ears, eyes, nose, they're all set up pretty much the same. But they're all individually unique because the person behind the face is unique. What's expressed there is unique. And the human face is the most expressive part of the person. We've all been in scenarios where you're like, no, no, this needs to be a face-to-face conversation. Or stop trying to text me about that. (laughs) Let's meet and talk, right? Because the face, someone once said that the face of a child can say it all, especially the mouth part of the face. Your face is very expressive. Well, what we're supposed to see is the face of Jesus Christ. And when he says that, does he mean just his literal face? Well, obviously not, because we can't see Jesus' literal face. And no, the picture's online or in art galleries are not Jesus' literal face. Paul knew that. But it was to see the expression of who he was. Again, I'll read this. Frederick Buechner, in his book, The Faces of Jesus, says this. To say that Jesus had a face is to say that, like the rest of us, he had many faces, as the writers of the Old Testament knew, who used the Hebrew word almost exclusively in its plural form. To their way of thinking, the face of a man is not a front for him to live his life behind, but a frontier, the outermost ever-changing edge of his life itself in all its richness and multiplicity. And hence they spoke not of the face of a man or of God, but of his faces. The faces of Jesus, then, are all the ways he had of being and being seen. The writers of the New Testament give no description of any of them, because it was his life alive inside of them that was the news they hawked, rather than the color of his eyes. When you think the world is on fire, you don't take time out to do a thumbnail sketch. Nobody tells us what he looked like, yet of course the New Testament itself is what he looked like. And we read his face there in the faces of all the ones he touched or failed to touch. You glimpse the mark of his face in the faces of everyone who ever looked toward him, or away from him, which means finally, of course, that you glimpse the mark of him also in your own face. Now, there's a lot of times people didn't want to look at Jesus' face. And there's some that looked at Jesus' face with incredible hope. Like he said, the disciples don't ever explain the face of Jesus to us because they didn't need to. It was the life the character that was being expressed there that was what was supposed to be seen. 
It's what their message became. We don't know a lot about his human face. The Bible tells us a couple things. It says it came to pass that when his time to be received up had come, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. His face was set to die on a cross. The Bible tells us that the beard was ripped out of his face, that they spat on his face, that they beat his face, that he was beaten beyond human recognition. He didn't look like a normal person anymore. And we're supposed to see in that face the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. If that's not a divine thing, I don't know what message is. The Son of God, if we see him truly, if we see him clearly, it changes things. That's why the stories get so strange that Jesus could just walk by and when a person looks at his face, he could say, follow me, and they'll leave everything in their life and follow him. Or a person who's lived their whole life with a withered hand or legs that didn't work could look at his face and say, stretch it forth or stand up and walk, and they would do it. It was because of what was behind it, the life that was behind it that we're supposed to see. And you and I get the gift of seeing the life, knowing the life behind the human face. Yeah, he had a human face. But what it expressed, what it showed, that's what we're supposed to see. What of you and I? Do we flee from the face that would be our salvation? We're trying to find excuses to think that that face, the one that was beaten and torn, isn't real. I don't believe that's the face. That's the salvation of the world. Or do we know who he is? And do we behold him gladly and look at him and become changed into the same image from glory to glory? That's what he would have us to know. That's what he would have us to experience. And that same life that walked around with the human face still gets expressed to us, and we can know it through his Holy Spirit with us, the Lord's Spirit. So let's stand. We're going to pray. I would say, again, if you're here tonight and you think you have some excuse for not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't. And Jesus loves you, and you should come down here, and you should give your life to Jesus Christ. Or you can stand where you are and say, okay, Lord, I believe that you are who you say you are. And then come and talk with us. We'd love to give you a Bible. Love for you to come to know who he is to see that light and have God speak light and life into you. And for the rest of us, once you see his face, it's not over, then we're disciples. Right? <laughs> once you saw his face and he said, follow me, then you keep looking at his face. And that face just becomes new to you. Right? Those disciples saw that face, they followed him. Then they walked into a synagogue and he cast out a demon. And they walked out of the synagogue and looked at the same face but they thought about him a little bit differently. Okay, this guy's more than we thought he was. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And they just kept learning and learning and learning. 
as they beheld him. And that's the path that we're on. That's what he's called us to. And it's going to go for eternity. It's never going to change because of who he is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. And I pray that you would open our eyes. Give us understanding. Give us spiritual light and vision to see you. Help us, Lord Jesus, where we get caught up in other things. Certainly, Lord, do your good work of transforming each of us into your image, into your likeness. Sons and daughters in whom you're well pleased. And Lord, I do pray for anybody that's here tonight or listening in that doesn't know you, that is now seeing you, I pray that they would believe and confess that you're the Lord, the Christ, the Son of the living God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.